Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. Bringing tax knowledge to the masses, we are going to answer your tax questions live today. And hopefully there's a bunch of you out there and hopefully we're able to answer all of your questions. Speaking of answering questions, there we go. I just made my screen show the right thing. All right, you could ask questions uh, via the chat. You could ask questions via email. It's somebody says it's also Taco Tuesday in our neck of the woods. Hopefully we get Taco Tuesday here tonight. All right, so we have a chat feature where we have a bunch of wonderful accountants and tax attorneys that will be answering your questions. I can see Elliot, Troy, Dana, Dutch, Pio, Troy's on, Ian's on, Elliot's on. Yeah, so it's not showing all their images to me, but I can certainly see them now. Christos. So you guys have a whole bunch of accountants on that are helping you. And you can ask your questions via the Q&A. Somebody just went right on in and started asking questions in the chat. And you can absolutely ask any question you want in the Q&A and they'll answer it. If you have comments, put them in the chat. Like right now, I'm going to ask you guys, where are you at in the world? Just say what's what city and what state. So we have a Houston, Texas. We have high from Wasilla, Round Rock, Texas, Palo Alto, California, El Paso, Texas, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Bronx, New York, Carmel, California, Noonan, Georgia. Now they're flying too fast. Kauai in uh, Hawaii, which is awesome. Beautiful. That's where I got married, actually. Austin, Texas, West Virginia, Greensboro, North Carolina, Dallas, Atlanta, San Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. Nice. The Woodlands, Texas, just a little north of Houston, Fort Myers, and then more stuff. We have Aloha. I'm looking for a syndication with cost seg. I want to find out if it makes sense to use this to offset my payroll to fund my solo for a Great question, Kathleen. Throw it in the question and answer. We could certainly help you. But you guys are seeing, there's Long Beach, California. I was just there this week, and I spoke at a conference on one of those days, maybe Friday. Maybe it was Friday. Yeah, it was senior, uh, for, uh, basically an elder residential residences for the elderly folks there. So you had a, it was very, very cool. Oahu, Orange, you know, Jersey, Michigan, Sacramento, Washington, D.C. So we'll leave it there. Washington, D.C. is infamous because we just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a set of laws that I don't know if they have anything to do with inflation. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I was worried that inflation was going to go down and now they're fixing that. So it's actually the Inflation Act, they mistakenly put in the reduction. No, maybe maybe it'll do something. Who knows? It's politicians. All right, let's dive in. I'm going to read out the questions we're going to answer today. Plus, you could ask a whole bunch more. These are the questions we're going to answer live. By the way, this is Jeff Webb, tax director, CPA, and he has to endure my shenanigans all day. And he's mad at me because I said his shirt looked like a, it looks like a science experiment. On my screen, it's doing all sorts of crazy colors. On that screen, it looks really, really nice. But that one, it looks like acid, like somebody's doing acid in your shirt. At least on that one, they can't tell if I got anything on my shirt from lunch. So we weren't going to say anything. <laughs> Apparently, Jeff has an eating disorder where he dumps things on his shirt. Yeah. All right. It happens. But we won't say anything because you can't see it. You can't see it. All right. Do you pay tax on discrimination judgment? If so, how much percentage? What qualifies as non-taxable income? Good question. Are solar, solar credits available for the installation of solar paddles and equipment on an RV or travel trailer? What if the RV or travel trailer is used to live in for a substantial part of the year? Is it better for a trust to sell stock and pay tax on any capital gains before making distributions to beneficiaries? Or should an asset be distributed as stock and let the beneficiaries decide whether to sell the stock? These are all good questions that we'll get. <laughs> Hopefully you know the answers to these questions, Jeff. I'm going to be rolling zeros today. All right. Uh, we have an active Nevada S-Corp since 2007. We've always used a portion of our home as offices to write off about 25% of the utilities. 
We are thinking of paying off our home and transferring the title to our S-Corp to use as corporate housing. Is this doable? Interesting. Could you please explain it's section 45L of the tax code. Do home buyers qualify for the credit per the tax code? It shows that we need to be involved in the construction. Just being a home buyer does not qualify for the credit. Question mark. So we'll go through that. And uh, that actually got affected as an affected by the new tax laws. So that yeah, actually got pushed up a little bit. Yep, they extended it and increased it. So you could actually get more of a credit if you know what you're doing. All right. I own syndication investments, A, B, and C. Investment A is sold as a profit. Can the suspended passive losses from prior years from all three investments be used to offset the capital gain profit for the sale? Or only the suspended passive losses of investment A can be used to offset the capital gain on the sale of investment A? I know this is going to be confusing. We're going to break it down. But if possible, may I please have an IRS reference to show my CPA? Yes, we will dissect that for you. I know it gets complicated, but the good news is we have an expert sitting right next to me who's really good at this stuff. All right. If earnings in any quarter are under $600, do you have to pay the taxes in that quarter or can you pay them when you file your income tax return? I have only had a small amount of income that I would be responsible for paying the, the taxes. I've been a W-2 employee for most of the year. So we'll get over that. We're getting into quarterly taxes, exactly what everybody wanted to do today. He said, woke up and said, gosh, I hope I get to talk about quarterly taxes. We're your answer. All right. I have a likely sale of a Rio, real estate owned, uh, usually it's bank owned for, so, which is kind of right. weird that they're saying that maybe it's, they have debt on yeah, it, I'm assuming. Okay, go ahead. Well, is that what you're thinking? Yeah, I, I didn't quite follow that, how it would be real estate owned unless they bought it from a bank. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, but we'll, we'll find out. If you're out there, whoever wrote this question, maybe uh, stick around so we could ask you questions via chat. Right. I, I have a likely sale of a Rio for $640,000 that will create about $500,000 capital gain and $40,000 of depreciation recapture. So they got it really cheap, selling it for a lot. I would like your input on my options. Pay taxes now, Opportunity Zone Fund, 1031, DST, then a REIT or any other ideas. I'm 65 and looking into more passive investments. Great questions. We'll get there. We plan on claiming qualified real estate professional status for my unemployed wife this year. We have been maintaining records and she has been using a separate phone and an email to track all of her real estate efforts. We live in New Jersey. And if we get audited for this, what will they likely ask for? How many years back? If the fund from funds from a self-directed IRA, SDIRA just stands for self-directed, are invested in the multifamily program and the program has a loan of, sounds like a syndication, so you say program, a loan of 70%, is there a tax liability for the gain? What is the tax rate? So really good questions, and we're going to have some fun with it. But before we go there, as always, this is just mind food. We've been doing this for years. We have tons and tons of videos on our YouTube. And if you go to our YouTube channel, which is the aba.link forward slash YouTube, you can absolutely just click the little sign up button, subscribe. And then every time videos comes out, which is usually twice, three times a week, especially now because the tax act, we're going to be dissecting it over the next few weeks. There you go. You can see my smiling face. You can get on in there and you could you could hear, hey, you could always go to the Tax Tuesdays right on the on YouTube. But also there's just tons and tons of videos. And a lot of these we well, all of our tax Tuesdays we make it to videos. All right, let's go in. Do you pay tax on a discrimination judgment? If so, how how much percentage what qualifies as non-taxable income? Usually for settlements and lawsuits, what qualifies as non-taxable or fall into two categories. First one being medically related, including personal injury uh, and so forth. And the other one is emotional duress. Mm -hmm. Those are both, neither are subject to non-taxable income. Uh, discrimination judgments will almost always fall into a taxable category because it either has to do with employment or housing or something like that, where the IRS has determined you're receiving money outside of any injuries you may have had. Yeah, and I would say that I'm, I'm just going to second what you're saying. It's usually pain and suffering is non-taxable, and then yes. oh, I forgot about that. And then compensatory judgments where they're paying you for like lost wages—that's always taxable. 
because your wages would have been taxable. So, you yeah. know, so the only place you really get a break is when you're doing like personal injury cases and you have pain and suffering, you're not going to be paying tax on that. But if you have lost wages, if you're uh, being compensated because you were uh, uh, discriminated, if there's discrimination, you were released, those would more likely be taxable. You can always try. The IRS is not bound, but you can always try in your settlements to put in there that that this was for the emotional distress that you suffered. But so let me ask you this. I, I sue whoever for injury, personal injury and pain and suffering. And the I'm also awarded a punitive. Punitives are almost always taxable. Uh, that's what I thought. Yeah. Punitives, they they just want to be they want to be compensated. Let's see. We usually have a a good lawyer or two out there. What do you guys do when you're doing? Do we have any PI lawyers in the audience right now? And then how do you guys usually spell it out? What do you guys usually tell your clients? There's there's almost always one or two floating around out there, even though we harass them. We love them. What do you guys do? Anybody, do you guys do anything as a matter of course in your settlements? We'll just see if anybody responds. If you are a personal injury attorney, which... <laughs> We may not make them feel very welcome here, Jeff. This is only tax. We're not doing the asset protection stuff, but it doesn't appear anybody is doing that. The other thing I see, Toby, is when you do have a taxable settlement, and of course, some part of that is going to go to the your attorney, mm-hmm. is it seems to depend on what circuit you're in on how to, that gets treated. Like some circuits say that Oh, that's not income to you if the attorney received it. Another say, no, it is income to you. It's all when the when the attorney receives it, it's always gonna be income that you paid to the attorney. Almost always. They're gonna try to play games with it. It's not a circuit issue, it's the IRS. And it goes down to miscellaneous itemized deductions. We don't have them anymore. So you're right. when you pay the when you pay the lawyer, they're just it's not gonna be so if I get a hundred thousand dollar settlement, thirty of that goes to the IRS or I, the my attorney, I'm going to be taxed on the whole hundred thousand dollars. Yes, and, and that's the problem, especially with personal injury right now, where the the percentage that you're paying the lawyer can be as high as fifty percent. So you do get some monies to cover some of your medical expenses and things like that, and mm-hmm. you're, you're paying the lawyer, and you're going to have a little bit of money left over. Then you realize you're paying a big tax bill on top of it. And, and that's, that's happened to a few people. So I know that there's attorneys trying to get around it, but again, the IRS is not bound by your agreements that you enter into with clients. And what they're going to say was this compensation for services rendered. And if so, they're going to say, well, then you paid it to the client. And that's one of my, my problems with contingency fees is that it's turning into unjust results because the client rarely gets made whole when all that's said and done, they just get this huge burden. The lawyer is only paying tax on what they receive, period. So they're okay. It's just that you can't write off any portion that you paid them, not since 2017. Yeah. Which is frustrating. All right. We beat that one. This is an interesting one. I don't know the answer off the top of my head. So hopefully you do. Are solar credits available for the installation of solar panels and equipment on an RV or travel trailer? When I read this one, I thought this was the stupidest question. Then I started looking into it, and here's what happens. For solar panels, you can put them on your main home, and you can put them on your second home. So what in turn happens is your RV could qualify to be your second home. If you don't have another second home, you could call your RV your second home. We already know that because you can- As long as? As long as it has a bathroom, a kitchen, and a sleeping area. So even your boat can qualify. Even your boat can qualify. Yes. Yes. So, and, and we only knew this because that rule applied for deducting mortgage interest on your RV. Mm-hmm. I just didn't think that far ahead that it could apply to solar also. So if you could make it into a second home and use it as a residence, which means you don't have to spend a substantial time on it. Correct. You just have to use it as something where you stay. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Then right now, I think it just went up to 30%. Now it was 26%, but I believe... This uh, implement the uh, Inflation Reduction Act changed that back to thirty percent. So I knew I shouldn't have claimed that credit last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you have to take a little peeky peek. <laughs> Somebody says, "Can you make an RV a first home if you are a renter?" 
Yeah, no, I don't. Well, your first, if you're a renter, if I'm renting from somebody oh, okay. else, yeah. Unless it's unless you're renting the RV and that's where you live, yeah, they'll look and say, "Where do you reside?" Yeah, so it's always facts and circumstances on these things. A lot of people think, "Hey, I can just say this is my primary residence, or this is you know my principal residence." It's not that easy. They're always going to say, "Where do you spend the most of your time?" Right. Uh, somebody says, just real quick, just because it's in the Q and A, and I apologize, guys. I'm reading three different screens. But if I see something that's relevant, sometimes I just respond. How does the solar deduction work? A tax grant or a discount? It's a mark. It's actually a it's a tax credit. So if I spend twenty thousand dollars on installing uh, solar, paying for panels and the installation, I literally get a tax credit, not a deduction, a tax credit of six thousand dollars. It was just fifty two hundred, but I believe as of today, as in like a couple hours ago the president signed the Inflation Reduction Act, that, that went back up to 30%, I believe. Don't quote me on it, but I'm pretty sure. Like as in like 90%, because they kept saying they were going to increase it, go go back to where it was. Which means you get, that's just offset your tax bill. Now, it's not a refundable credit. So I don't think you get, hey, if I only owe $5,000 taxes, the government's not going to send you a check for a thousand bucks, but I think you're gonna you're not going to lose it. And the solar credit we talk about being mostly for, I put solar panels on my house, so I get a credit for it. But it also mm-hmm. applies to, I'm getting a storage battery for yeah. my solar. It's, whole- it's, it's in a separate year, but it's still, the credit still applies to that. Now, you guys want to know something really twisted is if you're a landlord and you put it on, if you fall under a different section, <laughs> but not only do you get the tax credit, but then you get to write off, you take half of the tax credit and subtract it from your basis. So like, and then you get to write that off. You can bonus depreciate it. So you pay $20,000 for the solar. You took a $6,000 credit. I, you're I get telling it. me you can depreciate how much? 17000 That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy, isn't it? But you can do it. So what you do is you get you get six thousand dollar tax credit. You get fifty percent of that amount subtracted from your basis. Your basis is what you paid to put it up there. It's twenty grand. Subtract the half of the tax credit you took. So seventeen because it's got a useful life of less than twenty years. You can accelerate the depreciation into this year, right off the rest of it, even if you're financing it. So they're trying to give you many many incentives to put alternative energy sources on and whether you do it as a landlord i haven't done it myself because i always think of one more thing that can get destroyed <laughs> on my property or disappear and no offense but it's just sometimes you don't know what's going to stay in your home uh when you have little houses if you haven't had that joy of having your house stripped well it's just a matter of time right so you want to make sure that you have good you know making good decisions and really what you're doing is you're doing something for the tenant because the, the house now is energy neutral. Uh, has bonus depreciation been extended this year with the new Inflation Act? No, but it, it still, it's 100% this year. It's 80% next year, 60% the year after. They haven't, I, don't, I don't think they did. So mm-hmm. I should just say that. Shame you should have solar. They're very terrible. All right, let's keep going. Is it better for a trust to sell stock and pay tax on any capital gains before making distributions to beneficiaries, or should the assets be distributed as stock and let the beneficiaries decide whether to sell the stock? I, ha- I had to think about this for a little bit. Uh, so we're talking about irrevocable trust, which includes estates, and, and I kind of have a different answer for, for that. If it's a state, once you distribute that asset, it's going to get the basis of the trust, which has already been stepped up. If you're assuming that somebody died in the somebody trust. Died when we're talking the states. So let's let's back up just for one second. So Jeff is saying this is an irrevocable trust mm-hmm. that pays its own tax. It's not your grant or trust or living trust. Right. So living trust, land trust, personal property trust, that's not what we're talking about here. Those ones, they're ignored. It's just you. So it doesn't make any difference. But let's just say grandma passed away. She had a bunch of stocks and she left them in trust for the benefit of some grandkids. And this is basically saying, hey, would we be better off selling the stock and distributing the gain, possibly the principal, to the beneficiaries? Or would we be better off just giving them the stock, the kids the stock? So here's my thought in general for this question is, 
I think you're better off distributing the assets because they're going to go from the trust to the beneficiaries at the exact same value. The reason I like distributing the assets rather than selling them is trusts have very slim brackets. You hit the higher brackets really quickly in a trust. Yep. So I would rather distribute them to, say, I set up a trust for one of my kids, distribute that money to them and let them sell that in their tax bracket rather than possibly being at the highest tax brackets in the trust. Yeah. So whenever you have a trust, you're looking at, is it the distribution of income? Mm -hmm. So if you have a simple trust, it requires the distribution. It's always taxable to the beneficiary. Unless you apply it, if it's like a a, a dividend, you can sometimes apply that and apply it to the corpus and not have a tax just on that. But on a complex trust where you can distribute principal and interest, which is almost all of the living trusts out there, you can do health education maintenance support, you could raid the principal, then you're absolutely right. If, if you're not going to distribute that income, if you're not going to distribute the principal, then if there's a taxable event, it's going to be taxed at that insanely high trust percentage, yeah. which um, would be over $13,000 yeah. would be taxed at 37%. Exactly. So it's horrible. Wait, would it, they do no, have no. a lower capital gain, lower capital, but you would be in the highest capital right. gain rate. Right. Yeah. So it's, it gets pretty stinky. So what you do is you just distribute the net income. And if that's the case, then the, the trust pays no tax on it. If you want to give them the full on, hey, I want to give you the principal and the income, then I don't think it really makes a difference whether the trust sells it or it distributes it or you just distribute it ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Either way, that individual is going to be paying tax on that, uh, on those capital gains. All right. We have an active Nevada S Corp since 2007. Somebody, by the way, was asking a question about, hey, I just did a, uh, a settlement and they're realizing right now that out of a hundred thousand dollar settlement, they got about 25,000 of it. Now they're realizing, yeah, you're probably going to have a taxable event. Sorry. Some of it's going to the medical provider. I don't know how that works. I, I forget whether you're having to deduct the medical expense. I don't, I don't think so on that particular situation, but it depends on your settlement. Oh, I see what I you're saying. But yeah, I think that you do have a taxable event, even on the the lawyer getting paid. Again, I did a video on this once before. I may dig back into it just because there's people trying to find workarounds and it's not good. Not good. All right. So we have had an active S Corp since 2007. We've always used a portion of our home as offices and write off about 25% of the utilities. That sounds like it's an administrative office in the home. This is different than a home office that you do if you were a sole proprietor. So do not confuse these two things. The company, is reimbursing you for the use of your home. You do not have to recognize that as income. And it does pay everything from utilities to cleaners to property taxes and everything. And so so it sounds like they're using a portion of their house, a significant portion of their house, at least a, a quarter of it, and they're reimbursing themselves for that. We're, we are thinking of paying off our home and transferring the title to our S-Corp to use as corporate housing. Is this doable, Jeff? I would not just transfer the title to start with. I would probably sell it to my S corporation for one reason to use my 121 exclusion if I've lived there two out of the last five years. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I keep thinking about is uh, we're calling it a corporate housing. And I'm not sure what that means in this situation. Because normally, once you transfer title to another entity, you can't live there anymore. Yep. Or if you do, you're being taxed on the uh, fair market value of the lease back to you. So I don't think I'd be doing that. I'm not a big fan of having corporations own property anyway, because you can be in a situation where you have the gain stuck in there mm-hmm. and it's you're and you distribute it out to yourself. You could get, you know, end up with a, with a, actually treat it as wages to you. Yeah. I think the only way I would, only reason I would do this is if I wanted it to become investment housing. Whereas I'm running out to people that I don't, unrelated parties. Yeah. What you can do is sometimes if you're going to, yeah, A, you do that. The only time I'm ever going to really transfer a house to an S-Corp is if I sell it to the Mm S-Corp to take advantage of Jeff's talking about 121 exclusion. That's called the 
the capital gain exclusion on the sale of a principal residence that you lived in two of the last five years, if you know you're going to keep it as a rental property, then and you have all this gain and you're going to lose that step up, what you do is you sell it to an S-corp on an installment note, elect out of the installment category. It makes all of that income taxable in the year you sell it. You use up your half a million dollar if you're married capital gain exclusion, so you pay no tax. Now you have a nice high basis. S-corp owns it, you rent it. And you just did yourself a huge favor. Yep. If you're not doing that, then I would say, do not transfer this puppy into an S-corp. You're living there. There's always going to be a taxable event for your living there. And don't use it as corporate housing. There's no such thing. That's a term used when somebody's providing you with the benefit and the corporation owns it. They should call it corporate-owned housing, which case you are now a tenant. And, and, mm-hmm. if, and if the corporation says, hey, Jeff, you can live in my house, there's a taxable event for that. The same way as if they said, hey, Jeff, here's a really nice car. That's what they call taxable fringe benefit. Absolutely. There you go. 100%. So is it doable? Yes. Is it something I would do? No. Mm-hmm. You're writing off 25% anyway that you're getting tax-free. Why would you care? Like you're getting a huge benefit right now. Stop doing that. All right. Could you please explain the 45L tax code? Do home buyers qualify for this credit for the tax code? It shows that we need to be involved in the construction. Just being a home buyer does not qualify for the credit. Okay. I think they answered it. Okay. <laughs> uh, 45L is a part of the code that was designed to get builders to build super efficient homes. And it is, is focused on two groups, home builders and multifamily developers. I don't even think it applies to commercial property, correct? No, it's, it's, yeah, I believe it's going to be residential property okay. that, that meets. I think there's three different levels that you can meet. To, and uh, I know that under the new tax act, under the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, that there's new categories. So the credit used to be $2,000 per dwelling unit. So if I build a four-family home... Uh, that meets 445L, then I could get an $8,000 credit. Correct. But you can do it even if you don't build it, if you substantially improve it. Oh, yes. Okay. So you could actually gut it. We were just dealing with this yesterday in a 300-unit apartment building. And they gutted the place, had no idea that the credits were floating around out there. And they did put in most tax or uh, energy-efficient everything from appliances to the windows to you mm-hmm. name it. And uh, they were looking at it going, um, what do we get? Well, it looks like they're going to get about $2,000 per unit tax credit. And so 300 units at $600,000 is pretty good. I'll take that action. And again, it's a tax credit, not a deduction. You got it. It's a tax credit dollar for dollar. It's not a deduction. So um, it's kind of an overlooked area because they kept letting it expire. When I say they, Congress, so they even let it expire last year, and then they just re- reawoke it. It's now a $2,500 tax credit at a minimum going up to 5000 if I'm not mistaken. But again, that law was just signed a few hours ago. We haven't really had a chance to dissect it, but I know it's in there because I looked at it uh, earlier today, and I was like, oh, there's the final bill, and I just typed in 45L. Oh, yep, there, it's sitting. We'll see what else they did. I know that they did cars the 7,500 and they did the uh, tax credit and there's lots of other energy efficiency stuff that they're throwing in there. So this is the fun one. And I know you enjoy this. Uh, Would new construction count? Yes, Tommy. Uh, Construction, absolutely. And then uh, remodel where you're doing substantial improvement to the property. Substantial, I believe is the term they use um, that you could qualify. You have to have an engineer look at the property and, and qualify you mm-hmm. for the credit. So you do pay an engineer to come out and say, hey, you made all these things energy efficient. And I believe there's A, B, and C or one, two, and three. There's like different levels and you have to hit it. It's not hard to hit the first level to, to qualify. So uh, it could be pretty beneficial. All right. I own syndication investments, A, B, and C. So they own three syndications. In Investment A is sold at a profit. So they sell their first syndication and they make money. Can the suspended passive losses from prior years of all three investments be used to offset the gain of this sale? So I'm just going to say timeout right there. Let's set the table on this. They own three investments. It sounds like real estate. 
And in real estate, we like to accelerate depreciation, especially if you're in charge of the project, if you're one of the general partners or your real estate professional, or you just want lots and lots of passive loss, you can accelerate and then end up with this big passive loss. If you're an investor, chances are you can't use that passive loss on anything Mm -hmm. because you don't have a bunch of other passive income. So you're sitting there going, crap. And you're not a real estate professional, so you can't write it off against your other income. So you end up carrying forward passive losses. So that's what they're talking about when they say we have suspended passive losses from prior years on all three investments. So it's probably something like apartment complexes, medical facilities, surgical centers, you name it, warehousing, whatever. And they have these losses that are floating. And now they just sold one at a gain. What does it do to that passive loss that they've been carrying forward on A, B, and C? So there's three units. They just sold one what happens to that passive loss? So like Toby said, we have passive losses in A, we have passive losses in B, and passive losses in C. So we sell investment A. We know they're not real estate professionals because they have passive losses. Yep. First thing that happens is as soon as they sell investment A, all the passive losses under A become non-passive. They're freed up. They can be used. What the regs say is any gain from the sale of investment A takes on the same character as it was when it was an investment, meaning the gain is passive. And if you're having a hard time wrapping your head around that, I understand. Uh, It's the one time we talk about a passive gain. And why that's important is that passive gain can be used to offset other passive losses. So I freed up my passive losses in A. I've got this capital gain, but I can use that capital gain to apply against my losses in B and C. It unlocks. It unlocks them up to the amount of my capital gain from the sale of A. It's because it's passive capital gain. Yes. So you have passive gain, and then you can use your passive loss carry forwards against it. Whether or not that gain is passive at all on the first one is immaterial for that particular one. Mm -hmm. But there's one exception here, guys, where we can mess this whole thing up. And that's if you're aggregating all your properties together Mm -hmm. as one property, then there is no A, B, or C. And the only reason you'd be aggregating your properties is if you're trying to be a real estate professional and you don't qualify. So if you elect treat all of your investments as one activity, then there is no A, B, and C. There's one economic unit. And in order to unlock the passive loss at that point, you would have to substantially liquidate all three assets. And and this is something that we talk about occasionally that I've had these rental properties, or in this case, I've had these syndications for a couple of years. And I want to get into some other properties and I declare myself a real estate professional. When you do that, what ends up happening is you lock up all those other passive losses from the past in with your new properties. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because when you do this aggregation, what we call it, basically putting all your properties together, you have to aggregate all of your real estate, even your syndicated properties. So you got to be real careful when you're doing that real estate professionally. You need to go in and look to see if you have any suspended losses that that may affect what you're doing. I have to respond to one thing. I'm looking up in the chat. So personal injury case settled. There's twenty. There's, there's money that has gone out to a lawyer and they're saying, oh, shoot. Remember what we said earlier, that pain and suffering is not taxable. Mm-hmm. But part of your, whatever you have a lawsuit, unless it's all pain and suffering. Hey, I, 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 I suffered from some injury. Um, I mean, I guess there's a possibility that the IRS would allow you to allocate it all towards pain and suffering. I kind of doubt it. I think a lot of it would say, how much work did you lose? You know, where, you know, hey, I wasn't able to work for three weeks or whatever. It really caused me. That's going to be taxable to you. I'm sorry. Even if you call it pain and suffering, the IRS is not bound by your agreements. They, they do this in, in lawsuits. They do this in the sale of companies. When somebody's trying to allocate it all to a t- to particular class of asset, then they go through and they look at it. So, yeah, so I don't mean to freak you out, but 
there may be, that's why you get an accountant to take a look at it before you sign your, um, whatever it is you're signing when you're settling things, you should actually have an idea. So I know it just became a little bit just bad enough that, that you got that, Anthony. Happy to take a look at it, by the way. I'd be happy to take a look at it for you just to see if there's anything that you need to be aware of. Um, uh, and usually you could tell depending on what type of damages you had, what type you claimed. I'd probably be able to tell just off of a uh, demand letter is what your guys looking for. We're not trying to create more pain and suffering. No, it just, gosh, they get kicked in the shin. I mean, out here, these people, they, they, they go for large amounts. And uh, again, some of it's, most of it ends up actually being in a taxable category from my experience. And the IRS is going to certainly argue that. Hopefully you never get audited. Hopefully you're able to get made whole and you're able to get a good settlement. But boy, the attorneys take a big chunk. Let's jump into something else here. First time we were doing a live event in a long time. And when I say live in person for Anderson, we're doing a live event in December. It's actually going to have an extra day. If you're interested on the investing side, if you want to learn about real estate investments, we bring in and we work on the infinity on uh, the, the on the first and then the tax and asset protection and uh, is going to be on the second through the fourth. That's going to be a live event here in Las Vegas. Uh, we'll see where we're going to put it. We're looking at, we already had a whole bunch of people register on the first day, which is yesterday that we made people aware of it. They'll probably send you a link. If you want to come out, it's really inexpensive. I'll let you figure that out. I think it's uh, like, I don't even know how much it is, maybe a hundred bucks or something. They're pretty, it's pretty low. I'll let you guys look. And there's three different levels. If you're titanium, I know that is, there's no cost. If you're platinum, there's a small cost. And if you're not a client, there's a small cost. You just reach on out and uh, and we'll make sure that we take care of you. If you can't wait till December and you're willing to do the online stuff, apparently you are because you're on a tax Tuesday. We do a tax and asset protection event uh, about every other weekend. And uh, Clint does a fantastic job on the asset protection and I do the tax. So, hey, Patty, you have to tell me what the what the costs are. Tell everybody what the costs are. I don't know what the costs are. I know that it's something. Somebody says the platinum cost was $199. It might be. It's like, it's it's pretty low. But you get to come to Vegas, you get to hang out, and, uh, you know, we'll all get together and start doing these wonderful uh, live events again, which we used to do all the time. And then COVID came along. So we'll get back out there, keep doing them. First thing I thought was hang out in Vegas in December when it might be cold where you live. Yeah, come on out to Vegas. We do get a little chilly here, but it's sunny. And uh, the uh, casinos will keep you warm. Really good (laughs) hot. Uh, If you've done cost segregation analysis on new construction, would that analysis qualify for the 45L? A little bit different. So so pre-registration is $199 discounted from $599. All right. Is that for the regular pricing? Patty, or what if somebody's platinum? Is that it? So that's the regular. Do they get a special if they're titanium? So yes, you have to walk me through this. I'm I'm dense. So I know that they'll give you a really good one. And do you have a group discount on a hotel? I imagine we will once we figure out where we're going to put it. I know they have a few venues right now. It just depends on how many people pre-register. If it's 400 people, we're in one facility. If it's 200 or less, then it's someplace else. Platinum is $99. So if you're platinum, it's 99 bucks until September 5th. So what are we in today? You get like two or three weeks. Fantastic. All right, enough of this nonsense. Uh, in regards to the cost seg and the 45L, a lot of these companies who do the cost seg will also do the 45L. So talk to them about it. Um, mm. And they will do the 45L study for you in a lot of cases. I believe cost seg authority does, and I know KBKG does and some of the other places. Yeah. Well, yeah, all the guys, yeah, mostly if you're a specialist in cost seg, you're a specialist on the tax credits too, because it's the same engineers. Yeah. And I imagine that if they did a a cost seg analysis on your property, that it's not going to be remarkably different. They've already visited the property. They know what's in there. Now we're just looking to see what the energy efficiency is. I mean, it's a different analysis, but you've already, they've already been in the property. Uh, and then somebody says, does the December 1st, is that included in the 199? Yes. So you get to come. Basically, it could be a four-day event for you for 199 bucks. If you're titanium, I think it's free. 
don't want to speak at a speak at a turn turn. Anyway, the tax and asset protection workshops that we do virtually are always free. So again, there's one on August 27th and September 17th. Uh, my partner Clint does a really good job of breaking down the asset protection. I do an okay job doing the tax. That's why I have to have tax Tuesday so we can fix it. <laughs> All right. If earnings in any quarter are under $600, do you have to pay the taxes in that quarter? Or can you pay them when you file your income tax return? I only have had a small amount of income that I would be responsible for paying the taxes. I've been a W-2 employee for most of the year. Jeffrey. Okay. Uh, I'll try not to make this too long. Uh, So we're talking about estimated tax payments, quarterly estimated tax payments. And what it basically says is if you have more than $1,000 of tax than you did in the previous year, you should be paying this estimated taxes. If we're talking simply about $600, you can pay it with the return. Your tax is going to be very low, uh, less than $300, $200, and so forth. Many people decide not to pay the estimates. Uh, and they're just going to pay on April 15th, and they're willing to pay that estimated tax penalty. It's not really substantial but if you're not doing any quarterly taxes unless you really expect to have a tax bill of more than a thousand bucks, right? Correct. So you'd have to have fifteen, twenty thousand bucks worth of income yep. because you have twelve thousand right off the standard deduction. So and, and here's what I do in that case. If I'm working my same W two job, but now I have twenty thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars, I'm making estimated payments. Just so I can get the money paid in, and I don't forget about it, and I get to the end of the year, and I don't have that. It's because you're an accountant. But let's talk about real people. Okay, Tony. Because I'm 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 one of those annoying real people that doesn't like to pay in. Do I have to pay in? Like like if if I know I'm on my business, I'm probably not going to owe anything. Well, let's talk about Safe Harbor first. If I pay in enough tax, say through W two withholding. As I owed in the previous year. You don't have to worry about you it. You don't have to worry about it. Wait, time out, time out, time we're out. Gonna, I know what you're, where you're going with this. Right. So if you are here, this person is, and they're worried about quarterlies, mm-hmm. I would say stop worrying because it has nothing to do with $600. That's whether or not somebody has to uh, 1099 you. Yeah. What we care about is, are you going to owe money of at least $1,000 if you pay the same amount that you paid last year and you don't expect to owe anything else? The answer is no, you don't have to do quarterlies, right? Right. But if you're Jeff and you have a side gig and you're going to make an extra 20 grand and you know that you're in the 24% tax bracket and you're going to owe about five grand, as long as you paid at least 100% of what you paid last year, you still don't have a penalty on it, right? Right. Might you have interest or no? No, you wouldn't even have interest. You just owe the tax and you would pay it in the first quarter. Of right. The so then year. then we get to April 15th uh, and then you have to pay on everything you owe. Yeah. So the answer is you should probably talk to somebody, just an email, give us the, the facts and let somebody who's looking at your scenario, give you a response. If mm-hmm. you're platinum, it's free. Otherwise you'd have to be a tax client, but you could always reach out. Like we, We'll answer this type of stuff all day long. I wouldn't be worrying about it if I'm you because I'm looking at it saying, hey, earnings, you'd have to have a lot of earnings in order to make it taxable. And yeah. as long as you're paying what you did last year, who cares? You're not going to get hit with any penalty. You might have to owe something. Somebody said, hey, Toby, I think they were yelling at Patty. The Live 22 is for everybody. If you're a platinum, I think they have a special link for the platinum. So if you're platinum, just ask Patty in the chat for the link. I think it's Live 22 platinum, right? Knowing my crew, that's probably what they'll do. Um, and boom. And here's an interesting question. Does paying quarterly taxes reduce your chance of audit? No, it has nothing to do with that. Yeah. All right. I have a likely sale of a Rio real estate owned. Usually that means by a bank, but it sounds like it's them. Maybe they bought the mortgage. Maybe they bought a foreclosure whatever, uh, for $640,000. That will create about $500,000 and they have $40,000 of depreciation recapture. Mm-hmm. I would like your input on my options. Pay taxes now, opportunity zone fund, 1031, deferred sales trust, then a REIT or any other ideas. I'm 65. I'm looking for more passive investments. So I'm going to base my answer on your very last sentence that you're looking for more passive investments. 
I frankly, I'm not a huge fan of the qualified opportunity zones, especially as I get older. It's going to defer until 2026. 20, yeah. Big whoop. And I got to throw more money at it. I do like the 1031, but actually at this point, if I want more passive investments and want to have to do less work on them, I'm doing that DST to a REIT, RIT, whatever we call them, the REIT. A REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust. Um, I, I kind of feel like that's my go-to, and for a couple of reasons. Are you doing a deferred sales trust? No, or Delaware statutory trust. And then and can you do a publicly traded REIT with those? Yeah. So I could actually sell my property to the REIT and exchange get a share of that REIT's mm. entire portfolio. And that's one of the things I like about it. Now I'm not just investing in one property like I would in a 1031. I'm investing in a portfolio of real estate. I've never done a Delaware statutory trust with the doc. They always treat as though you own the underlying uh, real estate. And that sounds like that would be good for somebody who's just wanting to chillax and not mm-hmm. do much. Exactly. Yeah, And that's kind yeah. of my point. Otherwise, you're reallocating your property. You have a lot of gain and depreciation. And uh, you're old enough to where you might be thinking, hey, if I... You know, what do I want to do? I just want income out of it. You might 1031 it into income producing properties and just, you don't have to buy just one property. You can buy four or five properties with that much, depending on which area of the country, but you might be going into, you know, where we invest in North Carolina, Kansas City, uh, Ohio, Indiana, or uh, Indianapolis, and some of these other pockets where you can go in and buy houses that are still pretty inexpensive and have nice cap rates. You could do that. So you could do a 1031 or like Jeff said, a Delaware statutory trust. But I don't know anybody that I could recommend that do DSTs. No, I don't either. You just have to talk to your 1031 exchange facilitator and see if they're tied in with DST. Some of those make me a little bit nervous because I'm, I'm losing control. So say love you. You know, you, you might not particularly care. Yeah, you can kind of accomplish the same thing with a 1031 and multiple properties and just find a really good property manager. Yeah. And somebody says, I just want to chillax and collect passive income via short-term rental and MTR, multi, multi, yeah, whatever it is. I don't know what MTR is. I'd have to Google it, but I'm sure it's something that I should know. But yeah, you're just sitting back, letting stuff comes in. Short-term rentals, a little more work than I like. I've had both. Boy, people are killing it in Airbnb, but to me, it's always, there's a lot of a lot of work. Can I throw up a word of caution about the short-term rentals? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're considering buying a property for a short-term rental, please make sure that you can actually do the short-term rental. Uh, we have somebody who did one, bought a property, and the HOA said no. No. Yep. A lot of HOAs and states yep. and cities, yep. like here we had a restriction. Now they're doing like a lottery for to let you be a short in the short-term rental game. But... You, yeah, you do want to make sure that you can actually use it for your reason. But most HOAs, it's you can't do 30 days or less. It doesn't mean people don't do it and then they get fined and then they get into a battle with an HOA. You're going to lose that battle. Sorry. You walked in, you signed an agreement, you bought a property subject to the HOA. They're, even if you didn't read it, the courts are pretty, they're not really forgiving on that. A lot of HOAs are willing to throw a lot of money at minute matters. So... Yeah. But here's one thing. I'm just going to say this. Uh, of all the strategies that you could use for a high income person, mm-hmm. like if, if if I am a doctor, dentist, uh, lawyer, accountant, consultant, your sales manager, somebody who's making good money and it's active money, one of the few ways where you can take an immediate deduction against it is you buy a short-term rental and accelerate the depreciation into that year. You got to self-manage it for that first It could be like if we bought it now, we closed in September, you're managing it yourself to the end of the year, but you could accelerate that depreciation and take a huge deduction that will offset your W-2 income. You don't have to be a real estate professional if you're doing short-term rental. It's one of those one areas where I always look at it going, man, buy something that's an Airbnb, use it that way for the first year, and then make it into a long-term rental afterwards. Uh, somebody did say Four Springs Capital for DST to REIT. So somebody's there is already throwing something up. We make no recommendations, but if somebody's willing to share that, merrily, we will share that with everybody else. So I don't know Four Springs Capital, but you could absolutely look at them. At least one person is saying they're good. All right. Do we already hit that? 
Yes. No. We plan on claiming qualified real estate professional status for my unemployed wife this year. Well, she's not unemployed. She's a real estate professional. Mm, First thing we're going to do, tweak your nose a little bit, right? Uh, We have been maintaining records and she's been using a separate phone and an email to track her real estate efforts. We live in New Jersey. And if we get audited for this, what will they likely ask for it? How many years back? Uh, I forget about the phone and that's deductibility and the email. What you really need to keep is good logs of your time, her time spent mm-hmm. uh, to meet the various tests for real estate professional. We're talking about two tests. The first one, she's unemployed, so she's going to be able to meet the half, more than half her services. But she also has to have 750 hours in real estate activities. Real estate trader business. Real estate not, trader business. Not even investment activities. You got to be doing something, wholesaling. You got to be managing the properties. You got to be getting your hands dirty on the rehab, at least be present and at least be supervising it. You can't just be driving around looking for properties. That time does not count towards this first prong. And those hours all have to be hers. Now, in the second test, it's are you materially participating in the real estate professional activities? Uh, your you rental bu- activities. Your rental activities. Mm-hmm. And those can be both her time and your time that you spend on those rental activities. Yeah, there's seven tests on that one. I sometimes say nine. I always do weird things with my hands. Seven tests. <laughs> but the easiest one is if you're the, if you're self-managing your stuff. Yeah. So if you have your own properties, all they're looking for is, is logs of time. Technically, there's been cases where they didn't have logs. They weren't kept c- contemporaneously and they came in, but they found the person credible. There's also cases where they did not find the individual's record keeping credible because they would say like, I worked eight hours this day. And then they could see that after discovery, they found that they were out of the country during that time. And they call a little bit of BS on you. So just keep track of it. Use one of these, these little phone things that has a nice little calendar, put the time that you worked and what you did, and just make sure that it's active trader business versus investor activity. Mm -hmm. Investor activity does not count towards the first prong at 750 hours, but managing your uh, Airbnb, managing your rental, doing rehabs, uh, driving out, taking care of the property, supervising, all that stuff does count. Uh, The only time, I'll tell you this, the only time that you will get education included in that is if it's part of your profession. So if you're a realtor and you're doing continuing education or your construction and you're learning things about part of your trade, then you can add that time in. But it is real estate trader business. And if you need a code, oh, we didn't give a code provision for that poor gal. Oh. It, it's actually the same as I'm about to give you now. It's 469. So the people that were doing the syndications, I'll go all the way back to the syndication. There it is. That code provision is also 469, but you're going to tell them to go look at the regs because the um, suspended passive losses and the release thereof is in the reg is in the regs, not in the code provision mm-hmm. itself. But it's 469 if you want to give that to your accountant. Same thing on this one. And what are they going to ask for? Any contemporaneous records and the numbers. If you are taking uh, your real estate professional and you're accelerating your depreciation, you're going to just have to have your cost seg report, which is engineering study. And your the records of your purchase and your records of your improvements to that property. Right. Yeah. It's not horrific. And the chances of you being audited are still fairly limited. And it's not going to be New Jersey that's asking for it. More than likely, it's going to be the feds. So anyway. All right. If funds from a self-directed IRA, this is a you know, one of our friends like uh, IRA Club, Equity Trust, one of these companies that does self-directed IRAs. So this is not your Schwab or anything like that. But let's just say you have a self-directed IRA and you and you invest in a syndication that's doing multifamily. And that syndication levers up, which they all do, probably about 70%. Is there any tax liability for the gain? And it's not just the gain. We'll say on the income or any mm-hmm. any profit and on the gain. What say you, Jeff? So this IRA would be could be subject to UDIF. Uh, I always forget what it is, but it, it has to do Unrelated with related debt finance income. Okay, so yeah, if if you're using debt financing to make money, they're going to say part of that 
gain or income is disqualified from being tax exempt. And it comes down simply, you're not allowed to leverage your IRAs. So what happens, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if I make $1,000 in income in a year and I have 70% of it is from loan money, 70% of my income is going to be taxed. And it's typically taxed at the highest trust rate. So we're talking about 37%. It's, it's taxed as trust income. So it's very small. Like, again, you're at 37% when you're over 13,000. Right. It's fast and nasty. But what Jeff just said is absolutely 100% correct. The proportion of that revenue that is attributable to the loan is taxable as unrelated debt financed income and is taxable at the at the trust rates, which is, let's just be real. You're going to be at 37% because mm-hmm. your income is going to be, you're going to have income too. The other issue on this is it's so easy to avoid. So just be a 401k, self-directed 401k, solo 401k, roll your IRA into your 401k and invest through that because 401ks are not subject to UDFI. So if you're ever going in, let's just say, here's IRA and here's 401k. Let's say Jeff is the 401k. We go and it's both exempt. We both have $100,000 in our in our uh, account. We both go up to buy a property. Uh, properties right next to each other. Same builder. We put $100,000 down and we and we finance $200,000, rent it for three hundred grand, and we make... Let's just say we make uh, $30,000 a year. In my case, uh, as an IRA, I am going to pay tax on two-thirds of that $30,000. So I'm going to have a taxable event at at $20,000. It's going to be taxed at 37%, even though it's in an IRA. In Jeff's case, he's going to pay zero tax. He's going to have zero UDFI. That's the difference. As a IRA, I'm also going to have to have somebody that signs off on all those docs documents the custodian who signs off and signs all this stuff, Jeff gets to do all that on behalf of a, of a solo 401k. So um, just to put this real simple, if you are investing through your IRAs into syndications, you might want to reconsider repositioning that uh, into a 401k. Somebody says, where does a QRP figure into that? It's qualified retirement plan. That's a 401k. So a QRP is a 401k and a 401k is a QRP. The only difference is whether or not you have multi-employees or whether you're dealing with a solo. So we want to make sure that you're doing a, again, a solo 401k. And Patty is kindly putting out the different links. Sorry if we confused you. The for the For the live event that is going to be held in December, there's three links. One for that's just the general public. There's one for platinum and one for titanium. And if you want the discounts, if you're platinum, just you just type in the aba.link live 22, this put in platinum or you put in titanium if you're titanium, but we do check those. So if you're not one of those and you're trying to get a discount, it's not like you're just going to get the discount. We'll reach out to you. Somebody says, what if I inherit an IRA? Still, it's an IRA. I understand you're still going to have the UDFI. So that might not be a the, the appropriate vehicle uh, for putting, uh, doing uh, self-directed or doing multifamily where they're levering it up. Just do things that aren't levered. Frankly, I'm not the hugest fan of doing all these syndications inside your retirement plans because there's usually big, huge deductions that, that are available from those. And as we talked about with the person who was doing three syndications, you release those losses and you could use them. The losses are not used at all inside of a retirement plan. I also want to say that for a uh, IRA to invest in a syndication, I believe it has to have at least $1 million in its account. Oh, if it's going to qualify as if it's a, going to qualify. a credit investor. Yeah. That's, well, they can use the the, the uh, individual too. Okay. So if the individual qualifies, then I believe the IRA would too. But I'm not a securities guy. I'm just pretty sure that that's what it was. There's a bunch of stuff going on over there. It's a live, yeah, the, the live event in December, we're not going to be live streaming it. It's, I, I believe it's just going to be all, you know, again, you can get the extra day. That's also included. It's funny that we're getting so many comments on it. I just threw that in like literally five minutes before we're going on saying, hey, since I know we're going to do this, let's put this out there. And I'm sorry if there's a little bit of 
confusion there is because I probably surprised my staff. Um, can you post the tax code that were mentioned tonight? Melva, it's 469. It's 26 USC 469. And then you were looking at 45L and you were we were talking about 1031s. We were talking about 121 exclusion. Yeah, we're not, I'm not going to post it, but they're in there. And you can always come back and listen. We, we put this as a video and as a podcast, so you can always come through and listen to it. What else we got? Hey, go to YouTube because uh, speaking of which, we will you'll, you will get access to this. You go back and listen to it. Are you saying I can roll over my IRA into a 401k without going through an employer? Yes. You could actually have sole proprietors can sponsor 401ks. And the only issue is like, let's say I, hey, I'm going to do a 401k and I'm going to have employees and everybody tells you not to. You just can't contribute to it. So if you want to control it, let's you know, say you're a, a husband and wife and you have two IRAs, you want to get control of them and have them in one single unit where you can uh, um, invest in things that you want to invest in. You don't want to have to worry about unrelated debt financed income. Then yes, you could just do a single 401k and, and roll those in there. And you can have two IRAs, three, four, 10 in a single 401k. Um Anyway, I think that's about as much as I want to read out of the chat. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, hey, there's my YouTube channel. Go on there. There's lots of videos putting out probably two to three a week and all sorts of fun, different topics. I know I'm going to end up doing one on the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, if not this week, probably next week, as soon as I get a chance to really read it, and digest it. Nobody really knows what's in there yet. Um the people who voted for it have no idea what's in it. It's that we you know, <laughs> which is typical. Our, our, our politicians, we God love them, right? It would be helpful if they didn't try to just ram things through and they actually took a measured approach. But this was there's bits and pieces of this that have been around since last year. So, and that's where you have the CBO and some of these others coming up with analysis. You know, like how did they do that so fast? Nobody's read it. Well, it's the same stuff from the Build Back Better, and they already ran the analysis. What is the maximum contribution for a solo 401k this year? I think it's uh, 68,000. No, I, That's, I, I, if I, you're I, over I, 50, yeah, there's a there's a makeup provision. What is it, 62 or maybe maybe yeah. 68,500? Uh, the makeup is 65, I believe. 6,500 is the makeup provision, but I can't remember the, I, I thought it was 60, is it 61? Maybe it's 61. I don't know. We'll look it up, but it's it's right. I think I think the max if you're over fifty is sixty eight. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. And by the way, you could actually get that all into a Roth four hundred one k if you want to. If you're willing to, if you're making good money and you want to, you, you, it doesn't matter what you make. Uh, there's a way to do that, and the IRS actually tells us how to do it. So it's not something that's even hidden. It's, uh, but you do have to follow the rules and you have to have a solo 401k like Anderson's where you can do in service distributions because you got to take, you got to overfund your employee side, roll it into the four, the uh, IRA, the, the Roth 401k side, excuse me. So you, you have basically three buckets. Whenever you have a solo, you have your employee contribution, the employer contribution, and you have the Roth component. You're overfunding over here and you're not taking a deduction because you're rolling it into the Roth component during the year. So you never took a deduction for it. Voila, it's in the Roth 401k. And we love that. And you can jam a ton of money in there. If you're doing activities where you know you're going to make a ton of money, it's great. So uh, something, something, something cool. All right. Uh, that's it. If you have any questions in the next two weeks, you want us to answer, we always grab usually 10 to 15 of the questions that come in. We get about 500 that come in off this email. So you'll get, you'll get responses, but we always grab a few of them, uh, not in any particular order. And I'll be honest, I try not to read them before I pick them. I literally just start grabbing them saying that looks like a good one. That's not 10 pages long. Some of you guys really like to write, but then we just answer them live and uh, we usually get a good Good, good row of questions. You guys are actually always really good about bringing in uh, and, and asking good stuff. Thank you to Patty, Elliot, Troy, Dana, Ian. It's probably on there. Uh, I already said Elliot. Christos, uh, Christos is Dutch. on there. Dutch is on there. Who else is there? Pio is probably out there. Dana, all the folks that are answering the questions, you don't get to see their faces, but they're answering questions in the Q&A the whole time. 
And by the way, we don't charge for this. Uh, yeah. And people say, why do you do that? It's like, cause I wish somebody would have done it for me when I was starting. It was such an annoyance to have to book a time with the accountant. And they used to hit me for 300 bucks a meeting. I hated that. So we like to do this. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. And you guys all seem to have really cool, um, businesses and investments just by the, the, the feedback that we get. So cool. That's it. Anything you want to add? No, sir. All right. We will see you in two weeks. In the meantime, you'll get a copy of this. It'll be posted on the YouTube and on our podcast. If you want to go back and listen to anything, and if you ever need a clarification, just reach out to us. Tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com will get you to us. And we'll make sure that we always give you some clarity if there is any fog on an answer. Fair enough. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.